welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. Hey Christine, welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. How are we doing? Pretty good, pretty good. How about you? I'm not too bad, I'm not too bad. It's um, It's been a long time coming this one, right? Like we've, we've booked it and then I've had to cancel it, I think two or maybe even three times. So we're here, we've made it, we've made it. Yes, it's happening, it's <laughs> happening. <laughs> so Christine, I guess... Before we even get into um, the show, I need you to pick for me four numbers. So one from a hundred. 34, 86, and 97. Okay. So that's 34, 86, 97. I need one more, please. Oh, four. <laughs> Can't even count to four. <laughs> oh my God. This is going really well. Um, five. Five. Perfect. We will come back to them a little bit later. <laughs> <So funny. laughs> now you know I'm not working in finance because, you know. I don't know. Some of the people I know in finance struggle with numbers as well. Um, so, so yeah, Christine, like I ask, I ask the, my, my guest to come on the show and, and tell me a logline or a summary what sums them up. Do you know, can you remember what yours is? Mine was fairly wordy trying to stuff lots and lots of different things in. Some of the elements were global soul with a love for words. Okay. Which could be interpreted as loving to waffle about lots of things. So we'll go, we'll see how that goes. There is something about helping people and organizations develop and making the business world better than it currently is. Because I think it really, really needs it. Okay. So we're going to jump into a lot of these, I think, later on today in this. Um, so I guess before we even kind of get into it, obviously, Christine, we've, we've spoke on LinkedIn, we've met in real life. You're one of the actual few people who have actually met in real life. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess a lot of my um, listeners may not know who you are. So maybe if you could give us a bit of a, a bit of a whistle stop tour of kind of who you are, where you've come from all the way to where you are right now on this lovely Thursday evening. Wow, whistle-stop tour. So um, I think the who I am, but I have no idea. Maybe that will kind of assemble. That's probably work in progress. But in terms of key, uh, key elements, so I grew up in Germany, in case you're trying to place my best off accent. Um, initially started working as a journalist and in communications. Um, moved around a fair bit. So I lived in Switzerland, Ecuador, Japan, the US, and now in the UK. At some point, I moved into L&D. And um, it was quite interesting how that happened. Because as I was working as a journalist, my childhood fantasy had always been to be a war zone correspondent. Okay. And I... Um, I actually trained with the German army. They have a course you have to do if you want to go to, to a war zone for any of the big networks and so on. So I did that course. I realized um, the course was amazing. It was fully simulation based, uh, really kind of, it's basically a toned down version of, of what they do for the, for the people in the military. Very toned down, clearly. I mean, <laughs> but, um, I realized partway through the course, I don't really like loud noises, okay. which is a bit of a problem. <laughs> um, I'm also, I think I'm a fairly adventurous traveler. I do draw the line at minefields being shot at and all these mm. kinds of things. Um, and a lot of that we, we did, um, 
I think throughout the course, I, I found sort of a few boundaries, which I think is a good thing because I was sort of in my 20s and I thought I didn't have any, which is <laughs> evidently not true. Um, I got incredibly curious at kind of as this course went on, how they were constructing it, how they were, you know, crafting these experiences, how they were leading us in, leading us through, how they were kind of monitoring where we were, how they were kind of dialing up and down the heat in the different exercises and so on. I just found that endlessly fascinating. And that was kind of one of the things that got me interested in learning and development because I'm basi basically, I was then, okay, war zone, definitely not. But I kind of want some of what they're having. Um, and then the second one was a, a leadership program I did with an NGO called WISE, World Youth Service and Enterprise. And that one was fairly kind of, purpose-based and I know purpose is a, is a word that people kind of throw around quite a lot at the moment but that was uh, decades ago when I did that and it wasn't quite as, as overused then and it was genuinely kind of it had depth in it I, I wanted to to figure out kind of who I was and what sort of difference I wanted to make because I knew I wanted to make a difference and again kind of this transformation that happened in that 12-day program in, in myself and what I could see in other people that kind of got me to actually learning and development, which I didn't, I didn't really know that was a thing, you know, mm. kind of as, as something people would do for a living. Um, um, and then, then I kind of started finding out more about it. My, my initial degree was in communication and psychology, which, you know, was sort of useful enough. And then I did lots of other stuff, coaching training, facilitator training, um, all sorts of tools and methods i do like going quite deep so i want to kind of go as deep as possible and then also kind of turn it into something practical so i always got the feedback i'm too practical for academia and too academic for <laughs> <laughs> so i'm like oh but i kind of genuinely really want both like it, it kind of needs to come together for me and it needs to be practical and it needs to be deep and I found L&D so far has been a pretty useful playing field. There's tech involved if you want it. There's amazing experiences. There's steps. There's possibly making some sort of positive difference. There's deep, deep work with individuals. There's things you can shift in culture. For, for me, that's just, yeah, I just think it's genuinely really awesome. And that's why I'm still in it. Wow. So there's a lot I want to jump into there. So using you and i think we've we've spoke about this i think in the past but you you was um while you was in school you you did some work with the newspaper right yes so i was um i was one of the people doing the school newspaper which was really amazing and i have a friend of mine to thank for that because how, how i got onto that was um i wrote a naughty poem about <laughs> <laughs> one of the teachers as one does as a teenager and then she kind of you know then you kind of share it amongst friends like you fold it into a little parcel and you hand it around and what she did in the next break she dropped it into the mailbox of the school newspaper <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of liked it I mean some of it yeah there, there were definitely edits before it went into print but uh, <laughs> they they kind of liked the idea and I was at first, I was completely mortified. Um, I was also, I was a really, really shy kid. But I found that kind of writing was was a way of expressing myself. And also, I was the youngest person. 
in the school newspaper and I was sort of an awkward teenager anyway so it kind of made more sense for me to speak with older people rather than to enter the who's looking how competition which I didn't really wasn't really set up to win anyway so um yeah so that's how I got into the school newspaper and I really really loved it um it gave me a completely different view of my school experience because um we we actually got a key to the school building we were deemed to be responsible enough at wow. least the oldest two of us you know at some point i was then obviously the the oldest of the lot so two of, of us actually had a key and um, that was pretty cool um, and that gives you a whole different sense of school and community and you know you're writing about stuff that's going on at the school and it was kind of just a nice way of being involved finding out interesting things talking to people um yeah so that was just really awesome i also learned stuff about computers which was really exciting back then because that was a long time ago <laughs> so so i guess kind of going from from this school you know work you know doing some stuff within the school newspaper right through to wanting to be like a war correspondent like where does that come from where where uh, um it was kind of i grew up in a really small village and i was basically bored out of my mind as long as i can remember I taught I taught myself to read out of sheer boredom just because there was really wow. nothing going on. So I thought I was, I think, between four and five. So really, really early for that. Because um, in Germany at school, I know in the UK it starts earlier, but in Germany you, you start sort of primary school with reading and writing at age seven. So I was way, way early for that. Um, yeah, so I was, well, was interested about the world. I was interested in current affairs. My dad made it, made it always a point um, to kind of explain what was going on. We weren't really allowed to watch the main news kind of as very young children because that, you know, that would not have quite been age appropriate. But there was a children's news program on Austrian television. We were close enough to the border that you could get the signal. Okay. So, you know, we'd, we'd watch that and then have discussions about it. And And he was kind of always, so for me, it was always a thing you have to be kind of up to up to date with the news and there was also a bit of you know critical thinking where he kind of explained you know to you know there are two different sides and you kind of you know how, how an argument comes together in the middle um and then for some time i had um at some point then obviously i did start watching the main news and then the the war in former yugoslavia happened right when i was uh, right around that time and I remember um, Christiane Amanpour um, reporting about it for CNN International. And that just, I don't know, I was just endlessly fascinated. So wow. that was kind of, I was like, okay, I want to do that. Wow. It's, and then, of course, I went off and did something completely different for a couple of years. And then, <laughs> but <yeah. laughs> but I, I think there's something about that, right? Like putting yourself into a point, you know, whether you do go kind of war zone and you go, you know, war, war side, so to speak. So I wonder if there's, you know, a couple of words which have already jumped out when we've spoke and, and the words which I've noticed when we spoke in the past is like curiosity. There's a bit of, I think there's a bit of like a, a not a rebellious streak, there's a bit of a, a risk there and a bit of curiosity there. Is that something kind of what's always been around or is that something you've kind of nurtured, do you think? 
I think it's always been the case. I think in my childhood, I think I'm not kind of accidental, uh, not intentionally rebellious. I think it's more kind of an accident because for some reason I grew up with the, the notion that yes, rules exist out there and they apply to other people and you kind of need to know what they are. But for some reason, I never quite <laughs> got how they would apply to me. Sometimes it was just, you know, when you say, oh, but the neighbors are doing it. or Oh, but all my friends are getting it. And the parents say, oh, but we're different or, oh, you know. And I think I got quite a lot of that. I also realized that sometimes my how my parents lived in the village was different from how everyone else was living. Okay. I also understood that how I sort of um, take in information and so on was different from how others did it. You know, that the fact that I was able to read like four or five years before everyone else in, you know, in, in the year that kind of um, made that worse. I guess I read the entire local children's library. I didn't know you needed a library card because the librarian knew who I was. It was, you know, pretty obvious. And I remember we would go there and we had, you know, one of those big orange plastic, because 70s, you know, orange plastic um, laundry baskets. And we went there and I was always allowed to fill the basket to the top. And, okay. You know, that would last me like two, three weeks. So my mom was at some point getting pretty desperate because wow. I literally read everything that had letters on it. Wow. Um, so there's a, yeah. there's a first there, right? There's a first for knowledge. There's a first for... Yeah. It's interesting. I, I wrote something recently about this this polymorph and, and kind of this first for knowledge and this, this appetite what can't be quenched. There's always something... And actually, a lot of what you're, you're, you're talking about there is exactly them traits, right? That kind of constant mm -hmm. first and you can never know too much. Yeah, and it's like, you know, I want to know how stuff works. I want to know the background story. I'm interested in, you know, how how somebody turned into who they are. You know, I want to know who built that building and why it looks that way and why, you know, why the bricks hold together or, you know, like it just, and then you can kind of Wikipedia, I think I could probably spend like a year in there because you can jump from thing to thing. And I think that's something my brain does quite naturally. So, so yeah, curiosity is, has always, always been like that. But it's, it's an interesting one because I think just, you know, the, the questions which are going, like, why is that like that? What, why is it that that, that has resulted in that outcome? And why is it what that person is the way it is? But I think when we go right back to children, and maybe maybe it was just my school, I don't know, but there's a risk that the person, the, the person who's really generally interested and wants to know everything actually can be perceived as a bit of a problem in school. Like, it's always, it's always the same children asking why. Why? You don't need to know why. Well... I do. I do need to know why. It's an interesting mm. one. Mm. It was. I think. I think I was kind of. I think when I got really bored as a child, I tended to get aggressive because I couldn't handle the boredom. So okay. I think. So I think people were kind of as long as I was reading in the corner and was sort of you know well fed with a steady stream of information, I was like really nice and quiet and boring. And when I wasn't, I was sort of ripping the paint off the wall, basically. <laughs> so I think they liked the studious version of me better. <laughs> it was a bit easier to handle. <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, it was kind of because you mentioned the rebel. Because, you know, like I had to be in school with everyone else in the same classroom. 
but because you know back then there was no advanced placement or anything so you know i had to sit through four years of primary school at the same pace as everyone else as i was reading the entire library <laughs> so was like physically in the room but not participating in the lessons which also doesn't help with general discipline and going along yeah. with what everyone else is doing because i was just like yeah no <laughs> I think nowadays I'd hope that the school system would be a bit more elastic to find useful, mm. <laughs> useful ways of, of handling kids like that. But back then that wasn't really a thing. Also, girl, you know, like it's it was still really conservative. So you know, the fact that I did A levels as a girl was basically a revolution. Like that wasn't a thing, really? not at all. So you know, normally I would have like people like me would have stopped in, you know, after middle school and. <laughs> you know, done an apprenticeship and then, you know, get married and have kids. Yeah. And that was it. So wow. So it is quite, that, that that really wasn't a thing. Like the fact that I did A-levels, let alone everything else, just wasn't. So there's, there's an element of, of kind of resilience as well there, right? Like I bet a lot of people are just going, right, time out. I'm done. I'm done with this. It's, it's, it's tiring. But wow. Wow. That's, that's impressive. That's impressive. <laughs> I mean, I just think of the frustration of, like you say, the, you know, you being in school and you kind of being ahead of the other children. And then that must be so frustrating. So, so frustrating. Yeah, it was. Like, I remember, you know, the beginning of the new school year when you get the new books. I was always super excited. I'm like, oh, yeah, new books. And I remember with the English book, you know, you know, then I started reading and two weeks in, I was done with the book and I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, like, where's the next one? And I'm like, no, 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 the next one comes next August. And I'm like, no. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so you yeah. kind of go I from... Think it must, go I think it must have been quite unbearable for everyone else, I do have to say. I don't think I... I think I learned a lot of self-management, but obviously at that age, I had none of that. So I think that was pretty much all over the shop <laughs> so so we go from there and we go back, right back i kind of want to bring it right back to the tagline so um global soul with a love for words um helping people and and making the business world better so yeah maybe maybe break that down for me if you could yeah so i think i think kind of exp- exploring a little so I guess I always knew I wanted somehow to make a positive difference I had no idea what that would actually look like and you know the what's it called the Archimedean point where you stick the lever in and then you can move the world um I think from laws of physics there's something wrong with that but you know the (laughs) the course goes like that um I was kind of trying to figure out where that point was and at first, I was, yeah, I was kind of, you know, interested in public affairs, and I thought I was going to be a journalist and so on as a possible way of making a difference. But that that never quite felt active enough because I was writing about what other people were doing rather than doing the doing. Okay. And I still think the writing, you know, that it's that it's definitely right, and you know, there's 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 an element in there that makes sense. But I also wanted to do more of the doing. And then I worked in kind of the corporate sector for a while. And then I took a break at age 30 
well, it was kind of a bit of a forced break because I had a burnout. So <clears throat> one could also say I, I broke rather than I took a break. But um, I was then kind of reconsidering, okay, what next? And so I took a time out to kind of get get myself sorted out, kind of recover a little bit from, from that. And then, but kind of came back with the idea, okay, actually, no, it's not the, you know, because the conventional story would have been, I don't know, I start my own charity or I start a mm. surf bar somewhere, you know, like the usual, you know, ex-consulting company, <laughs> whatever people do. Um, but I kind of, I, I did quite a bit of soul searching in that time. And it was really clear, no, actually, you have to go back in there and fix it. Okay. Which which still which I still feel really strong about. So wherever that came from, but that that seems to hold true. And I had, you know, those biblical reasoning with my fate sort of moments where I'm like, oh god, I just do something else and now this feels kind of big and I just get something else. And but but it really seems to be like, no, that's the place where I'm meant to be and that's where I'm meant to start changing things. So that's what I'm working on in one way or another. So I guess kind of the, the natural question I would probably want to ask him is kind of, well, what's broke? So, I mean, I know that's a really heavy weighted question. I know I'm leading you into it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, yeah, what what's the thing what really jumps out to you at the moment? Especially, you know, with the work that you're doing and stuff, what's really jumping out to you? I think in a way business has a lot of potential that it's not using because very often it's sort of the most vibrant, best resourced part of society and global infrastructure and all of that. And they're using it to mess things up rather than making it better. <laughs> and, you know, it's not, you know, I mean, I know how business works in the sense of, you know, you need to make a profit or at least break even to be able to keep going and so on. So, you know, like I, I like to think I'm not naive about that. And at the same time, there's different ways of doing that. And most organizations, or uh, I know it's starting to change, but a lot of organizations still seem to make very short-term choices. Mm. They seem to be mostly in for themselves. Also, I find very often people who are in the business space sometimes seem to be leaving part of themselves at home that never quite make it to the office. <laughs> so it's almost like they're, you know, the way they're like really nice and really caring people who have ideas, who are creative, who care about stuff. Sometimes that doesn't show up in the office where I'm like, well, where, where did that go? You know, mm. where did like your playful eight-year-old go? Where did the person go who cares about what happens to someone else yeah where, where does it go like you know i think and why why is it that people can't bring their eight-year-old self to i mean obviously to some extent the, the, when we say eight-year-old I, I guess i mean like the curious creative eight-year-old mm -hmm. um why do you think that is why do you think kind of is it a case of some people try to bring it and it gets dampened or is it a case of some people go actually that doesn't belong in this this corporate environment where where why yeah where and why i guess i think there is i think some of it is 
we've turned it a bit into an arms race. So people have this zero sum mentality. So if I want something, that means someone else is less. Mm. And I think there's probably some areas where it's true, you know, like if we have a pizza between us that has 12 slices and I eat one, then there's one less for you, you know, that's kind of yes. Yeah. But I think in a lot of areas of how people work together or relate to each other, it's not really like that, but people treat it as if it was. Okay. And I think they're also very often afraid. So I had... Um, I worked for various consulting companies and I remember often I had really good, really deep conversations with individuals. And as soon as more than one of them was in the room, even though, you know, I, I knew all, you know, like these five people really, really well when I was doing training stuff or something, the conversation changed so completely as soon as someone else was in the room, even though, you know, it was almost like, all five were afraid to be the first one to say it. And they probably would have been all relieved to kind of, you know, drop the facade a little bit. Yeah. But somehow that never quite happened. Or, you know, it happened for some people. But it also wasn't really a culture where that was possible. Now, I know that sort of big name consulting might well be sort of an extreme end of the spectrum. And there's probably um, lots of stuff in between as well and it's not like you know i guess the other extreme would be people think people in in business are kind of soulless robots and that's completely obviously not true either yeah um but i don't know like it seems people are people are scared to show themselves people are also scared to make decisions and then hold them, you know, to be like, okay, I don't think that's the right thing to do. So we're not doing it. End of story. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it's also, I mean, you know, unless people have a trust fund at home or something, <laughs> which most of us don't, it's also, you know, it's your livelihood. Like, you know, how much are you really going to bang on the table when you have, you know, bills mm -hmm. to pay, you might have dependents in other countries, it might be, you know, your health insurance and all, you know, like, it's not like you're not completely free either to, and, you know, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, and you have to take risks and, and, and blah, blah, blah. And I find very often the people who shout the loudest are the ones who can afford it the most. But, yeah. you know, we also, I think ultimately we know very little of what's really going on in people's lives. Yeah, I think well, everyone's unique as well. Like, it's not like the mm -hmm. people who are coming to work are all, you know, thousand, a thousand cardboard, you know, carbon copies of each other. They're actually the complete, a lot of time, the complete opposites. And, you know, someone might zig, other people might zag. And, and times that by however many options and choices and and decisions a person has to make on a daily basis, it's, it's a bit of a minefield. I also think, I think there's, I think there's something about perception as well. Like, you know, that kind of, not wolf pack mentality, but that mentality of, mm. I've got to be this person around these other people. And and it's an interesting one. I think there's a, there's a thing of the fear. Of, we, we talk about feedback a lot. Like, we've got to give feedback. Mm. But there's also, there's, a, there's also a fear of feedback, even if you're the person who's got to give it. Like, you know, the feedback is, uh, how's that person going to take it? But sometimes you think, actually... Is a repercussion of me giving that feedback 
going to do my personal brand damage internally or externally? Is it going to, like, there's, there's so many other things to juggle just on having that one conversation or, or having that really mm. in-depth conversation of, of, you know, how how have you just turned from this person to this person in in, 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 this, in, in 10 seconds when someone else has walked in the room? Mm. But yeah, that thing of kind of the accountability of bills to pay, you know, mouths to feed and whatever else. I wonder how many, how many times, I think we, we have an issue where we try to, we, we get so, we've been told to, to kind of put so many filters on what we've got to say that over time we've lost what the message originally was, what it was meant to be saying. And then that causes a lot more confusion later on down the line. Yeah, and I think people start planning with the safety margin, you know, and then they just, you know, say 5% less and the next time they say 5% less than that and it's kind of yeah. like the, the the room keeps shrinking. Yeah, it's a great it's a great analogy for sure. It, and it, it's very, very true. It's very, very true. I remember I had to have a difficult conversation with, it was someone who was um, above me, my stakeholder, mm-hmm. and um, it was a difficult conversation to have at the time and it was, but... We, we never held back. Like, I would, I said, this isn't a personal thing. This is just how I'm feeling and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it was, on reflection, I remember thinking, that felt a bit, a bit challenging. But on the back end of it, like, we've got such a good relationship now. We're friends. We are friends. And I mm. just think it's good to be able to have that conversation. But the, the issue comes when you can't. When, when there's some barriers in place of giving that feedback and it becomes a little bit warped and tricky. I don't know. I think the other thing is, and I've, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, for me, when I started doing sort of more structured personal development stuff, first just for myself and then later as part of training up for one thing or another, you know, doing, you know, facilitator training, coach training, psychotherapy license you know like all these things um nobody actually teaches you how to do that like if you're really lucky and you had a pretty good childhood and you know had some good role models you know you might have picked up some of that but it's not like you know nowhere in the education system at least not the one i went through and i mean you know i did a degree in communication Mm -hmm. psychology so you know there would have been you know space for that somewhere possibly you know, like this whole self-reflection, how do I self-manage? How do I identify how I feel about something? I mean, I remember when I started doing personal development stuff and somebody asked me, well, how did you feel about that? I literally, like, I would not have known where to look. I mean, I can't even, you know, <laughs> you know I had things like actually realizing how I felt about something. I remember there was stuff like with, with one of my exes or I was really angry but the anger kicked in with about one to one and a half year delay. And I'm not actually kidding. Like, it took like that long to just kind of land. Um, so that, that took a lot of practice. And it's not like nobody tells you how to do these things. Mm. And I think that's also a missed opportunity because you could, you know, we could all probably be much better with ourselves and each other if, because some of it is just technique and you practice it and, you know, it's fine. But, you know, you know we, we don't even know that that's a thing. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think, like, if you go down the route of, say, how people have counsellors and stuff, 
Honestly, I, I honestly sit back and just think it's because you the value of a counsellor is because you have an impartial ear. You you have mm-hmm. someone who doesn't know you, who doesn't know the repercussions of what happens. They just give you an open eyes feedback based on that moment mm-hmm. and you. And I, I just think it's a really missed opportunity a lot of the time, you know. And I, I guess because you know business aren't, businesses aren't set up for you to all be, you know, not talking to anybody in the business. You know, over time you're going to make friends, and then the impartial ears are going to slowly but surely fade away. But I think that's the value of like I mean, a, a, you know, counsel and coach are very different things, but a good coach. A good mentor, like these are the things which mm. really, really matter, I think. But I think we're starting to see that a little bit now as well. Yeah, I think the other advantage is pretty much everyone else in your life will have some sort of personal agenda in what they're telling you and what they think you should mm. be doing. <coughs> Sorry about that. So, yeah, pretty much everyone else will have an agenda in what they tell you you should be doing. And, um, you know, like, of course, a good line manager will coach you, but they're probably not completely divorced from whatever outcome comes out mm. of it compared to a, an external coach. Yeah. Or, you know, if you ask your mom or your sister or, you know, your old friend, should I be doing this? Then, of course, they know you, but they also know they know their version of you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and they know like your past version, and they might have an idea what a possible next next iteration of you might look like. But very often, it's sort of a linear progression. You know, it's like, oh, you know, he's a team leader in the finance department, so he'll be like ahead of something next, and you know, now he has like a flat, and then he'll get a house, and then you so, so it's all like you know a linear progression along the same lines. And there's not really any room for anything that's not that. And I think a lot of stuff in life is not that, or it could be not that, but it doesn't really come up that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the it's that um, legacy of this is how it has to be done. Like it's step two always follows after step one. And you actually go, well, nothing's ever really a straight line most of the time now anyway. But yet, mm. as soon as we go into, say, a corporate environment, we, we put these barriers up, right? And we say this is a process and this is a, the way it should be done. You go, actually, it's not like, that's not real life. Not real life. And also, even like how you how you even get in there, like if you're thinking about the average recruiting process, it's like, you know, it all needs to like stack up and very often you kind of, you know, look back on your CV and you're like, oh, okay, I can kind of, you know, graph the story out of that. But, you know, like as you were living it forwards, it, it really doesn't, you know, that's not how it was. You can kind of make it sound like that backwards. But, yeah, sometimes sometimes it would be nice to have the other conversations as well. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of CVs, so we get told in life, we've got to do this great CV. And when you're going for an interview, you've got to be the best person. You've got to show everyone all your success. And I think, actually, we should really ask, what does your failure CV look like? So if I was to say to you then, Christine, what's, what's your... What does your failure CV look like? Or what's been the biggest failure for you? What What's the one thing that kind of jumps out? Um, I definitely had so many. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, I mean, obviously, you know, there was lots of stuff going right, but oh my God. Um, yeah, so I think, I think probably the biggest one 
was um, that that felt very momentous because it was one of those really freakish things where you think that would never happen to me and until it kind of does. And it was sort of a personal thing. It was a professional thing. It was also where I felt like I just completely failed as an adult. So I was um, around age 30. I was homeless for a couple of weeks, which, um, yeah, I think is in most respects a pretty big failure on most counts, really. Um, Yeah, so... um, I never slept rough, thankfully, but I was kind of couch surfing and doing all sorts of random interim things. I had, um, like for a couple of weeks, I was staying in an architect's office who didn't really have enough work. So I was basically crashing on her office couch. I wasn't allowed to be near the windows. I wasn't allowed to be seen, you know, coming in and out of the flat. I was kind of you know, hand-washing clothes in the sink, trying to draw them, to dry them on her desk and stuff like that. Bizarre. Um, at the same time, I was like going to professional networking meetings and all sorts of things. And people thought I was a really active person because I kept schlepping a gym bag around. <laughs> and, you know, it's like wearing a suit, um, carrying a gym bag around. And it was just, it was so awful. And I realized, you know, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, and you can get benefits and blah, 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 which are all people who've never actually tried to get benefits and have no no clue how the system actually works. Um, Because it actually turns out you need an address for most of those things. And if you don't have one, that's actually a real problem. Um, And I didn't really have kind of friends where I could, you know, on paper move in. I didn't really, I wasn't really in touch with my family at that time. Um, I had like a tiny little bit of, space left on one credit card and that was it basically that was the the lifeline and that was sort of pretty finite so i knew i had just a couple of weeks um yeah i wasn't really able to get benefits or any other sort of help so that was really really miserable um and yeah and it was not something i had really you know like you don't think that would happen to me and then it kind of happens and it's so it's like so surreal and I think I must have sort of it was almost like you know the the overload of the situation is so big that I don't think I fully realized how awful it was until probably a few years later because I just you know first of all you keep going yeah and also because you have so little infrastructure everything takes like half a day to organize um just just you know kind of keeping keeping stuff going and there was like I found an internet cafe that had like it was you know back then internet cafes was still a thing you know where I could go and like it was just it was so bizarre and then um I was looking I was interviewing for jobs and stuff and then I managed from that situation to get a job at BCG which um (laughs) was really bizarre because you know, like I was homeless and then I was putting on a really nice suit to rock up at a BCG office and have, you know, like wow. Wow. <laughs> interviews in the consulting space. And I remember um, I was really hungry and there were like, you know, coffee and biscuits and stuff. And I needed like, obviously you need to sound smart and so on, but I, I needed like all my self-control to not make a lunge at the biscuits. And just, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, 
<laughs> distract wow. them and then you know like it was just like oh my god um like yeah speaking of putting on a facade in a corporate environment i mean that was just the weirdest thing and yeah so i so then they actually hired me um and then things got really complicated because at that time in Germany, you get an actual written contract that's, you know, signed in a wet signature, sent to an actual address, which I obviously did now. So yeah. <laughs> it kind of became a bit complicated. Um, then that worked out. And then thankfully, that kind of provided enough stability to kind of keep, you know, get, get things back together. Because then with that job contract and the nice looking suit, you can then, you know, like, go to a bank and do stuff you can then kind of try yeah. and rent a place to live and all of that and i was lucky because the person i was moving it was a, it was a shared house and the landlord um was kind of fairly you know nice and jovial and we kind of got along really well and we had been traveling a lot and so on so you know we kind of bonded and the only background check questions he asked was with which football team I was supporting to make sure it wasn't like the other one. Um, <laughs> so I passed that test and, um, you know, so that was fine. So that was the only background check, but that was really, that was obviously really lucky because, you know, like I had no references, you know, yeah. like, cause I couldn't really, <laughs> I couldn't really list the architect, you know, which office, you know, like that was not work. So. Yeah, and then I started working at BCG, and it was just really weird because obviously, also, you know, I mean, that sort of stuff um, trashes your finances and all sorts mm -hmm. of other things. So it became like the the beginning was like bizarrely difficult because people have all these fantasies, you know, what your life is like when you're working for a company like that. And my life was obviously nothing like that. Um, I remember I had like you know oatmeal in in like the, the desk drawer and like if i never ever have to eat porridge again in my life i'd be really happy because <laughs> i remember like the one the one kilo bag of oatmeal was 29 euro cents okay and that's kind of so yeah i ate a lot of oatmeal um wow yeah so that was just just really bizarre and then you know like on fridays they had these recruiting things and there was always food left over and i was always you know because you, you kind of you figure out the timings and then yeah. you're always kind of you just happen to be around yeah. when, like, <laughs> the leftover food comes out but yeah that was uh that was really weird to kind of rebuild things wow. and it does feel because yeah speaking of putting up a facade because obviously you know i mean there was enough in my biography to you know say all the right things in all the right places and you kind of know how the game works but obviously nobody had any idea that that happened i mean i worked at bcg for seven years and until until the very end there were three or four people who knew about it okay. um so wow. yeah, some some people. Once this episode is out, some people might probably be a bit surprised. But yeah, because I've never really told anyone because it's just such a weird thing. Like, wow. it never felt like quite the right. Just because it's so weird, and it's also you know like, and I guess that's some of the things that are because you mentioned what's what's holding us back. Because in my mind, I obviously said, "Look, who's going to trust me with I don't know." heading up some, you know, some part of L&D or doing a big global project if you can't even, in quotation marks, keep a roof over your head, you know, like yeah. it's really, you know, which is something that most adults manage to do pretty well. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, should you be, should you be responsible for a budget if you can't, like, if, you know, 
But it's a crazy one, right? Because that's that's also a massive success for you in a way. Because, I I mean, I can't relate to that. I can't. Um, But I can can probably see how that is something where, again, it comes back to this resilience, what we spoke about at the beginning. Like, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. that, that would have totally broken. That would have been a thing of, it would have been just slowly but surely, slowly but surely. And then... And then you've kind of, yeah, you've championed through. And I, and I want to kind of, I don't want to say this is your biggest success because I, I don't know you want to say your biggest success. But just for me, I think that is an absolute awesome success. But I want to flip it on its head. So we know what your, your biggest failure. I'll put that in speech marks. But what's been your biggest success? And this can be, I want, in fact, I want to. I want your personal and I want a professional. Mm. Oof. I think biggest personal success is probably that I'm still around and that things are going well. Okay which doesn't really sound like much, but there was just, you know, I think it took, it took a while for me to kind of get to know myself and learn how to team up and partner with myself rather than working against myself, if that makes sense. Um, And I mean, as you can see from that story, it didn't, it didn't always go so well. Um, so I definitely knew there were definitely things I needed a few practice rounds on and to, to just kind of figuring out, okay, how and where do I fit in? Where do I want to fit in? Where do I not want to fit in? What are things that are genuinely me and mine that I want to have that way? Also, yeah, I had... Um, Yeah, like throughout my 20s and most of my 30s, I had pretty disastrous relationships. You know, I think there was definitely also some some patterns that needed working through. And so I'm not with somebody at the moment, but um, there was somebody fairly recently, and that was a completely different type of relationship. So it feels like that's a lot of that has all changed and kind of evolved for the better and that I think that in in its sum feels feels like a success okay awesome awesome thank you for sharing so I guess yeah so I want to jump into your books I want to get into them however go for it before we do I want to know over in your books in fact yeah in your book, what book would you give as a gift to five people? Um, who? That's really difficult. That's actually surprisingly difficult. Um, I think business books would be easy, like non, you know, non-fiction sort of, you know, for, for types like us that work in that kind of space. 
if they don't have it already, I would give them Reinventing Organizations by Lalu. Okay. And as a gateway drug, the illustrated version. And if they like it, they can get the other one and footnote themselves out. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. Like, I think... Like, what I always find the most gripping... And, you know, don't get me wrong, I like the smell of frameworks in the morning and all of that. And I read a, you know, shed load of work related stuff as well and enjoy it. But what, what I always find most gripping is to find a literary fictional reflection of something real. Okay. So I'm always I'm always geeking out when I travel to either read books or novels or something that takes place in that place or um, is at least a writer from that country, you know, as far as it's translated into a language I can work with. So, you know, like things like I read Walden actually at Walden Pond in Massachusetts, you know, like I do these kind of things. Okay. So I think I would probably figure out where people have been or where they're planning to go next and then try and curate something around that. Do you find that immerses you into the, the story of the, the book more? Is that is that something you kind of do to help with immersion or is it just a case of it's just a nice little pattern what you've, you've put in place over time? Mm. I think it somehow amplifies the experience because I have my own resonance to a time and a place and then I read someone else's. So it's almost like having two lives at the same time in the same place. Okay. And if it's a place I like, then, you know, twice is better than once. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> All right, cool. So that's really, that's really interesting, actually. It's kind of quite, a, I quite like that. It's a nice take on, on make. I, I think it's, it's adding more to a book rather than just a book. Yeah, it's really, really nice, actually. So let's talk about your books. So, yes. Um, You've got a new one which is coming out, and then you've got the values-based one as well. So just you know, I'm I'm going to not do this service. Tell me about your books, and let's start with the first one. <laughs> yes, the first one. Um, the first one is called values-based career and life decisions that make sense, and what the book is meant to be doing. It's essentially a taster or a start of a journey not unlikely what you know what what you'd be doing with a coach so you know starting to to go deep on some of the aspects and prompting some ways of putting them into practice so some of the things the book helps to discover is the values obviously that's in the title and for me, that's quite an important element because I was looking for something that's deep enough that it's really grounding and timeless. And, you know, there is some, some bigger element and some depth that you can then use to start hanging other things off of. And I found values quite useful because they're, they're human. They're, a lot of them are universal. So, you know, regardless of what your religion is and what you voted in the last election and, you know, all of that, there are a lot of the, the core values, especially, are quite universal. 
They're also personal. So, you know, if you have five people who say family is a value or success is a value and you ask them what that means, it will still look quite different. Mm. So I think making that as one of the elements you're shaping change around, especially if you're, you know, because a lot of people that, for example, that I work with in a, in a coaching capacity, they're kind of mid-career and they're looking for something that has a bit more depth and they want to to kind of make that bigger in their lives. And I find values are quite a useful, a useful element for that. And then the second half of the book is really how you can start bringing that, making that more a part of your life and making that a thing in your change and also how you can set yourself up better to kind of take those steps and sustain the changes and so on. Okay, so, so I guess a book so I've spoke- it's basically it's basically what i would have wanted in my 30s and didn't find so i basically <laughs> wrote the book i wish i had had that's and, brilliant that's brilliant yeah. i think that i think that's that's a lot of a lot of books and a lot of ideas and stuff comes from 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 friction right and and the gap what you felt um so the book how how did you find writing the book because i spoke to a couple of people who's wrote books before and they said not a chance i will do a second book it's stressful it's hard work it's a lot of work hey sorry we interrupted your podcast but we just wanted to let you know about vendorly where finding learning has developed at vendorly we understand the pain points of looking for reliable vendors and securing new clients We've created a platform to help you with this, save you time, and help you flourish. We want you to be the first to see it, so head over to vendorly.co.uk and take a peek. That's Vendorly with a double N. So yeah, how, how did you find writing the book, the first one? Ooh, um, I actually really, really like writing. Um. I like editing a little less and that's also a big part of the journey <laughs> but but I also do I do like it it's um I like how my body and mind feels when I do that I like it cuz it's kind of like in a way it also forces me to be true to what I'm telling other people to do so it's actually a really good checkpoint where I'm like look I've just literally written people should be doing this because that's the right thing am I actually doing that and sometimes I have phases where I'm like okay I can't possibly write that until I'm actually doing it myself so I think it's a really good accountability point um it does take over your life it it completely does um um it helps to prioritize because it does take over your life so you then need to reevaluate a lot of the choices around time and you know what you do when and all of that and i find it helpful because you know i have a couple of really really clear priorities and everything else that's not that you know either doesn't happen gets outsourced gets automated or i just literally don't care <laughs> <laughs> And I find that really, really helpful. You know, like I haven't had a TV since 2004. So I'm like, I don't need to know what's happening with Love Island. 
once I had actually figured out what that was, you know, like, because people say, where do you find the time? And then I ask them what else they're doing. And I'm like, yeah, that's three hours a day. You can write a book with that. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, so the second book was basically... Uh, the the first book was I, I call it the second one because I started the the other one that's not out the, out yet I started that first okay and then I had a, a Christmas break where I kind of did a self imposed writing retreat and at some point I got so massively annoyed that the book wasn't progressing fast enough and I wasn't really that I basically went through my blog posts and all sorts of other stuff I've been writing. And I'm like, okay, there's, there's a shorter, snappier one in there. Um, and then I had a couple of long train rides to Scotland and back and around Scotland. And then I was pretty much, when I came back, I was sort of 70% there with the shorter book. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to plow through and start shipping things. And, and that worked really well. And now I'm back on to laboring over the other one. <laughs> yes. See, it's, it's an interesting I mean, one. it's because I'm definitely not at the sit- in the stage where I'm like, I'm never going to write a book again. In fact, I have like a whole folder with like mind maps for, for like the whole pipeline. Wow. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with all of that. But yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, it, it, I find it fascinating. Um, so, so I'm trying to think of when, so, so I have a book deal, um, and it's interesting. I'm go, I'm going through a bit of struggle at the moment, figuring out what to write, and it's so I have dyslexia anyway. So it's a, writing isn't a, a, a strong point as such, um, and yeah, it's an interesting one how I'm finding a lot of stuff which you just said. Then I'm like, it is me, like. Oh, I've I've got to spend two hours writing when really Netflix is downstairs and it's calling me. And I'm like, no, stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. What what was, what was the hardest chapter? What's been the hardest chapter of your like or part of the book for you to write? Hmm. Um. That's probably in in the one that I'm still laboring over. Because that one is about values and decisions. So decisions is one way of, of, you know, how the big vision gets practical. And there are bits in the book that are about, you know, how do you recover when stuff goes wrong? Or, you know, how do you have tough conversations about ethical dilemmas and stuff? And... Some of that stuff is really difficult to write because I found, like for me, writing feels really immersive. So it's almost like I'm writing myself into a similar physical state than I want the, you know, the emotional state that I want the reader to be in. Not quite at the same level, but at least so you can physically feel where, you know, where it's going and that it starts kind of tingling in all the right places. Um and that one was really difficult. What was super interesting, I had like the most uncomfortable long weekend. So I wrote that that bit over, you know, one of the bank holiday weekends just because I knew I needed like a big solid chunk of time. And that was the, the only one. And it was hideously uncomfortable. And then kind of, you know, by the time it was the last day, sort of, you know, after lunch, I kind of realized on a meta level the process I was going through as I was writing that. 
And I'm like, okay, Christine, you've now just literally cycled through every single defense mechanism <laughs> you have, you know, with like, oh, I need to clean the oven. Oh, um, maybe I'll... <laughs> I don't know. I just literally went through all of that. I'm like, okay, isn't that interesting? I can't even write the bloody thing, let alone telling other people they should be going through all of that without going through that. So I kind of felt really, you know, like when you're catching yourself doing something, you're like, oh my God. Mm. <laughs> so I was like annoying, funny, and really uncomfortable at the same time. So I basically then just ripped up most of what I had written as one does. And I kind of made that a thing. I'm like, okay, you're probably at that stage, you know, and now it's probably this is happening in you. And by the way, you know, because I then just kind of decided to be a whole lot more transparent about it because I'm like, hey, that's literally what just happened. So I'll just write about that. Um, and that felt a lot better, but oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I think... The awareness, the self-awareness of that, right? Like people could easily find themselves doing that and not be be aware to it actually happening. Wow, <laughs> you, you're getting through it, though. You're getting through it. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm I'm doing the work, but I'm also like, yeah, I'm doing the work of the writing, but also doing the work. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> so I guess, kind of, where where can people get these books? Like, you know, where. Where, where, where can I go now? So say I've got five people who want to know about values and five people who want to buy the new book. Like, where, where do we go? Where do we go to get them? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, so there's my website. That's christinelocker.me. Locker is with an H. And the book, if you type my name into Amazon and values, that should come up. So the book, uh, the book that's already out is available on Kindle at Amazon. And all the different um, regional, national um, ones as well. So, like, if you're in France, you can still buy it. No excuses. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other one um, that I'm still finishing will obviously then also be on Amazon and all the other usual channels. And um, I will definitely shout about it on the website and everywhere else that I like shouting about things. So Twitter and so on. Which leads um, me into yeah. a very good segue. So <laughs> it's like we planned that. Um, so obviously we, we, we engage on Twitter, we speak on LinkedIn, Twitter, you know, and you, you're, you're quite active on, on Twitter. Um, so I want to talk about social media. And this year I've kind of, with season two, I've kind of dug into social media a little bit more. And I just, I guess there's two weighty questions which I, I kind of ask my guests. So the first one is, social media as a whole do you do you see that as a net positive or a net negative for society Ooh. Ooh. um that one's a tough one um i remember i had a job in like the late 90s where the internet kind of started <laughs> like yeah I'm not old <laughs> and people were telling about you know how the internet was going to be this great force that would level the chances and everybody would all of a sudden have a chance because online you know whatever um, which I think for the most part probably hasn't quite worked out or at least not the way people were thinking um, at the same time like if I'm looking at for example what Twitter has done for me 
Um, you know, both personally and professionally, I would not have been able to do that in any other way. Um, you know, meeting people, being involved in discussions, forming relationships, getting insights, getting, you know, seeing seeing people. For me, it's almost like a virtual apprenticeship. You know how like in the Middle Ages, a, a, you know, a, a craftsman would apprentice with a master and you would kind of see how how they perform their craft. Okay. And I find with a lot of people on Twitter, a little less so, I think, at the moment, but maybe two, three years ago when I started being active on Twitter, there were quite a few people where it's almost like you could tap into the thinking process of somebody who's really advanced in the field you're trying to be in. And, you know, short of being in the room with them when that happens, and you can't because they have 25,000 followers yeah. and it doesn't really work like that. Um, but you still have some chance to do at least some of that. It's almost like you can catch some of the hallway conversations. You can hear people think out loud. And then you hear them speak at a conference and you can then reflect back on how you could observe them thinking their way into what their point is at the conference six months later. Okay. Okay. And for me, that's that's real. That's almost an apprenticeship of sorts, and I get a lot out of that. So you said, kind of, um, maybe not over the last three years or so. So would you say you've seen a shift in in say, and maybe maybe let's just keep this to um, an L and D profession. But have you seen a, a change in the L and D profession on social media and and how? people share and and what we talk about right now mm. or maybe it's how they do it i guess i think there is i think there's quite a lot of people who use that as a one-way broadcast channel where it's just like buy my stuff buy my stuff and mm. oh by the way have you bought my stuff yes <laughs> oh here's more stuff buy my, you know it's like yeah okay i do the first time um and you know, I'm saying that as someone who obviously also posts repeatedly that I have a book out and so on. So, yes, I know that. Um, at the same time, I also find some of the discussions has gotten sharper, less within the L&D community itself, because I think, you know, a lot of the people like, you know, that we might also know in person, they're, you know, they're still kind of, you know, the same and equally wonderful. But I think it's just the... Like the discussion on social media can also be because it's open and everyone can join. It's a bit like, ugh, you know, like mm. <laughs> always the right people for the right reasons. And I think it's also then people react really strongly in the way that they might not when you're standing next to them. Yeah. And like, I don't know, like I felt massively uneasy, you know, like at last learning technologies, there's the anonymous account bad learning yeah. to kind of poke poke at all the unscientific stuff and so on. And I mean, you know, you've seen me poke fun and learning styles and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, but like, I, I still think there's a difference and kind of this whole, I don't know, like it, it, it kind of just, like it's that really uneasy with me, almost kind of calling the community to kind of, oh, if you see something, you know, 
it's sort of like the modern day version of the pillory, if that's the right word. And like that, that was a bad idea back then. And I just think there should be other ways of doing that. Yeah. You know, like how about talking to someone first before? And you know, that's just one example. But I think on social media, the there's a lot less inhibitions to kind of things can escalate really quickly. And also, you know, you can say a lot in 260 characters, but it's also really not a lot for nuance yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there's there's a, and, and this is probably from an L&D point of view more than anything, um, just because honestly, that's kind of all I use with Twitter for now. L&D. I close mm. my Facebook down, I have Instagram and stuff, but Twitter tends to be, Twitter and LinkedIn. And I think it's interesting, you've got, there's a risk, you get a bit of mob mentality. I've seen that happen on mm. on, um, on Twitter, and I've seen I've se- I've actually seen it where no one's really liked it until let's use the term thought leader likes it, and then everyone jumps on it. So I think you've got you've got the person who who says things really provocative because well, why not? It's Twitter. I can say whatever I want, and then you've got this thing of this mob mentality, especially that kind of thing which you said there about Twitter accounts. So I haven't followed that because I just feel like you're giving power to something where, all right, someone might still believe in learning styles, let's say. And yeah, it's frustrating when when you hear, when you've kind of, you know, you see it, people saying, look, it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. And one of the things which I've kind of slowly started to figure out, probably back end of last year and this year personally, was stop trying to kind of, call it out you you don't know where they are on their journey like just because you you've got this awareness of say something like a learning style it doesn't mean they have that yet you know we might have only have that because of our our circles and all the research we're mm. seeing stuff they might not have access to that so i think you've got that kind of person i think you've also got the person of who who can take credit for other people's work but i think you've also mm. you've, there's the other side of the people who so I, I I asked a couple of people probably a year and a half ago like we're in we're in an industry where we share you know we're all about sharing and knowledge and and stuff why is it people are stopping to sh- sh- stopping sharing like really you know like you mentioned the detailed stuff like why is that becoming less and less and less and it came back really quick that well that's my IP like. You know, my IP is, let's just, use me as an example. Let's just say right now, the thing which I'm talking about is experience design a lot. But that's only one part of what I do. Like, I'm talking about it because not many people know about it, so I'm going to talk about it. But then, in the same respect, you, I think there's, a, there's an issue where people never really tend to, people don't really tend to credit people anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I struggle with it. Like, if if you like how I design x then might say oh this is something by danny you know it's it's a weird thing of nobody really credit anyone now because everybody wants to be perceived as the top dog the the thought leader or and i hate that word but you know everyone's striving for that and i think it's a really weird thing and like when i very first got into it don't get me wrong i wanted to be that person and but at some point you just go you, there's always someone better than you right it's like there's mm-hmm. always someone who's tougher than you. There's all that's it's going to exist, mm-hmm. and I, I I just I struggle 
I have a real love hate with social media. I have a real love hate with it. Like it's kind of you need to be on there to be able to share what you know, but then it can kind of capture you to a point where you where you go, wow, I've just lost two hours of my life having a debate with yeah. someone in two hundred sixty characters. <laughs> yeah, so. well, and it's again the facade thing because you you still curate what people see you know like even your witty comments and your slightly self-deprecating you know like you chose that and you chose all the bits you didn't mm. put there yeah um and yeah it's kind of and obviously you know people still everybody tries and make themselves look good which is by the way why i went off instagram because i think i think i'm too ugly for instagram no. like whatever i did something that had like my face on it like my follow account dropped so drastically and then i put something on with like a nice picture and then i got like 50 followers back and then i did a video or something with my face and then i lost 50 again i'm like oh <laughs> <laughs> well but it's like you know there's a certain aesthetic and like maybe that's also why twitter works better because you can be like witty and post links and stuff and it's not so what your face yeah. looks like but, but yeah i don't know like i think there is there is again like you're building a facade you're also then because you feel like you know people intimately and in a way it's true but in a way it's also not because you know their twitter persona and i think for some people, that's fairly accurate. Yeah. You know, it's it's consistent. I mean, you know, curated, but consistent. Um, but for a lot of people, it might also not be. You know, like sometimes you then meet people in real life and it's like, you know, you've been friends for three years, even though you've never seen them before. And then for other people, it's like, oh, hmm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like once you have a conversation that's more than three sentences and you're like, oh. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I remember when I very first set up my my LinkedIn account and I was looking at all these other people who was posting stuff and I was like LinkedIn doesn't feel right for me like the guy who wears a hoodie it doesn't feel like LinkedIn's a spot for me when I very first got into it and I remembered I tried to do posts and, and talk in a way what wasn't me and I just remember thinking this just does not feel right and 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 actually it, it I had the aha moment I was like why don't you just just be how you are with your friends. Like, just talk how you talk how you are with your friends. And then people, when they judge you, they're judging you based on on a right thing, not on a wrong thing. And you you are right. There's still there's still a certain persona. You know, there's still certain ways I wouldn't say on LinkedIn, but I'd say to my mates in the pub. Like that's mm -hmm. there's still that. But, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's a more it's a more honest version of me than what would be the corporate version of me. I think. And I I think. Over time, that's done me in quite good stead because it's also, and I've had this conversation with Nick Shackles and Jones. He's like, that's also the thing what stands you out, like, and 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 I think yeah, over time, it that awareness thing of actually just just try and be you more than try and be someone else is always a win, but it's hard, right? It's hard because you yeah. have certain people who who are not them, and they're doing really well. It's a, it's a tricky mm. one. It is, it is. Well, and it's kind of, you know, and maybe also, you know, you do it in steps and you see what you can get away with and how your environment, you know, with clients and so on, how they respond. Like you probably wouldn't do that like on day two, you know, like off filters <laughs> off and everything. Probably not. Well, I wouldn't at least. Um, 
but then it's also like once you set something it's kind of out there and you can't take it back you know like there's no like there is a coming out but there's no like coming in you can't be like oh no no you know like just <laughs> yeah. you, you know <laughs> it's kind of there and you're like oh okay i just said that and then there's like i called it I call it vulnerability porn, you know, like people are like kind of getting really excited about other people's really big dis disclosures. Yes. But yes. You know, they wouldn't then necessarily, it's almost like, you know, the intellectuals ver uh, version of watching daytime TV without watching daytime TV, you know, then they kind of. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting one, right? Because a guy who I know, he, he 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 put up on his instagram here's me helping out i i think it was a soup kitchen or something it might have been a big issue i can't remember and i was like it's great that you're doing that but why did you feel you had to take a picture of it actually it's more value if you didn't like who are you doing it for are you doing it like there's always no matter when you help someone you always a bit selfish because the feeling what you get from helping someone like you can't help that that's just how it is but then there's also a fact of, here, here's a picture of me doing that thing. So then it's like humble bragging. I, I can't, mm -hmm. it just does not sit well with me at all. Oh, that's my dog there making a guest appearance. Um, Yay! <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a weird one and I, and I struggle with it. As much as I like it, I dislike it. I think I'm having mm. more fun with the likes of TikTok now, which is a bit more interesting than your standard. Oh. Yeah. That's a bit more. Never quite played with that. I'm I'm scared to start because I don't want like another rabbit hole. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a rabbit hole for sure, for sure. So, I guess kind of coming round to I've got two questions, two big questions, and I I want to see where you take them. L and D. Mm -hmm. What's its biggest problem right now? Oh, how do I phrase that? If I say itself, I might be out of a job tomorrow morning. <laughs> no, because it's a bit like, I think, I think it's all kind of the right intentions, but sometimes I think we, we kind of make something into a thing that doesn't need to be a thing. Wonderfully unspecific. <laughs> you know, like, because I mean, it's not, you know, you talk about social learning and blah, and then I'm like, and, 70 20 10 and all these things but i mean honestly humans have been doing that since we all sat around a guy in a cave who was bashing two rocks against each other like this is really not new honestly mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then there's like a new term for things and a new framework and then it comes with a platform and more functionality and here's another bit of functionality and if you see no my functionality is cooler than yours and you know like oh, it just becomes this really big thing and then all of that is there and kind of needs to be used because you know somebody bought it and you get like credit for it because there's an article somewhere that says that this is how you do it and someone read it so you need to like react to it and blah um rather than really sitting down with people like you know actual humans like as in the people who are actually going to receive what you're going to cook up and have a conversation, you know, like figuring out what is it we're actually trying to do? You know, what is it we're trying to fix? Does what we're doing actually do something? Is it fun? You know, like half the stuff, like honestly, I once had a 
I was like many, many jobs ago. I'm not saying where it was, but like they mandatorily co-opted the L&D department to, to, to QA check their compliance training module, which was so, so awful that they had to make it mandatory for L&D as part of their role to test it. <laughs> like all bloody 45 minute click through of it, you know, like the sort where you can't advance and you can't yeah. click the thing where it just like, it just makes you want to poke your eyeballs out. And I'm like, you're L&D and you hate it and you know everyone else hates it. Like what makes you think that's a good idea and that that's the way you, you want to be delivering this? You know, like half the time I'm like, you, you wouldn't eat that yourself. You wouldn't wear that yourself. Like seriously? Mm. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, and yeah, I think that ties into what, you know, what, you know, the, the, the stuff Nick is saying about courses and resources and, you know, some of the conversations we had about experience design to also think about things in the right size. Like what, what does that thing want to be? Mm. And then, you know, if that wants to be a PDF with five bullet points on it, that's actually great yeah. <laughs> you know? and if that one needs to be a two-day immersive something for very good reasons then maybe that's what it needs to be but then don't look at the agenda and say oh it's eight hours if we cut the lunch break and we do some pre-work and so on can't we do it in six and oh let's just do it virtually in 90 minutes whereas like hell no <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and the other thing is, and I can rant about this forever, but then the, the other thing is also, you know, like the, the partnering approach, because sometimes people treat L&D like the pizza delivery hotline, you know, like they mm. call in two days of time management. That's my favorite, because it's literally never time management. <laughs> like it's all sorts of things, so it's just really never time management. I mean, maybe like once, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and then they expect you to deliver. And I'm like, like, would you like fries with that? No, <laughs> it's really, oh my God. Yeah, because I think it, it, it could be so genuinely awesome. You know, like all that stuff that, I mean, I certainly felt that attracted me to, to that. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how, how you feel, but, you know, like that, that kind of stuff that, you know, that touches you, that helps you where you see, you know, the light going back on where you see something really working better. I want more of that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a risk, right? Like we, we talk about digital transformation and learning digital transformation and and, and I kind of I kind of say, oh damn it, you know, the tech is the enabler, but you've got to be aware that tech doesn't fix everything. And the more you sleep, keep going down that way, you come away from the actual person who you're meant to be helping and supporting and developing. And it's it's a tricky one because I get it. Businesses want more for less and they want, you know, less time invested, but bigger result. And, and, and I get it, but I think there will be a tipping point and I think I think we've we've started to see that already. Like we've we've started to see that tipping point already, because especially in the day now where here's a great example. So we a couple of years ago a different a different company where different to where I am now, we brought in a um, LXP, and the first thing the first two things, two or three things we had when we when we reached out to our people was they turned the notifications up on the app. On their learning platform that's the first thing they did is turned it off because it's like i don't want to see that when i'm out of work 
um, they they went to it and then realised that the UX was really really bad and then never went back to it again because it'd take like 15 clicks to get somewhere. So then you've got a different behaviour and you've got to change. How do you bring these people back into a platform where they've already had a bad experience from it? And then the third one was, it just, it was hard to use. Like, it didn't feel like Facebook. It didn't feel like Instagram. Like all these apps, what you have there, no one's taught you ever how to use them. You just figured it out. But then we go inside and we give them this technology where you've got to go through some learning to figure out how to even use a damn thing. And and the last one was, I'll just ask Bob outside of me how to do it. And it's conversation. People want conversation. They don't they don't want the business wants tech. The business wants tech. A lot of the time the people don't want tech, they want network. That's just what they want. They want people, they want they want face to face time. But I just think there's a tipping point when the business hopefully will start to see that a little bit more. But hey. Might not be an hour. Might not be an hour time. Mm. Oh my god! <laughs> so I'm going to be. I'm going to be around for another few decades. <laughs> <laughs> I think statistically, it's it's not even like if I if I go the way my grandparents went, they live way into their nineties. So I'm not even half like wow. not even half time yet. Wow! So. That's that's impressive. So, I'm going to be implementing a lot of digital stuff, <laughs> <laughs> assuming that's where things will still be. And yeah, we'll still be having one. the same conversations, don't worry. We'll still be having the same conversations. So kind of taking it on to a bit more of a coaching angle then. So a lot of stuff which I've seen recently at Learning Tech was coaching tech and the usual jazz, you know, wherever there's something going on face-to-face, there's got to be a digital solution for it. Um, but... Take out of that, and I think I've seen a lot of companies who are working with you know great coaches and and actually you know external coaches and stuff, and really getting real good results from their people. I guess the two things well, I want to show you on that one then is what's coaching's problem, and what's the biggest success for coaching. Hmm. Wow. Um, the biggest success is probably that hmm. it's almost like it reminds people of something because I think a lot of times it's not actually new you know like as a coach it's not like I'm going in and give them advice it's almost more like you remind them of something you know like for example values or resources they already have or something like that so it's a lot more kind of about holding space about supporting people to do something themselves and also in a way you know it's not like because coaching is kind of fairly circumscribed and short term you know it's not like the psychotherapy of the of the old school Freudian, you know, where it's like 500 sessions or yeah. something you know, like that. Totally not like, it's not meant to be a lifetime subscription. It's meant to be just, you know, you have a thing you want to explore and then you explore the thing and then you've explored the thing and you get on with your life. And then, you know, maybe a few years later you have a different thing, but you know, like that it's solution focused, it's resource oriented. It's meant to support people. Um, and I think there is something about the time and the space. 
And that's something people, I'm not saying they don't really have because they probably would, but they don't really allow, allow themselves to have that. And kind of the, the going deep, the admitting to themselves what some of the things were they neglected for the past 20 years. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's where coaching helps. And in a way, it's also at least that's kind of how how I'm doing it. So I don't think it's a secret science or should be. And, you know, very often, I mean, I work with accomplished professionals and, you know, a lot of them have, you know, other, you know, they've read books and they've done stuff. So it's not like, you know, um, also, I don't think it's a secret science. So, you know, like if people ask, oh, you know, what was it you just did there? And, you know, what's the basis for that and all of that? You know, if people want footnotes, I have footnotes. If they want to know, if they want to do, you know, they're curious about a specific intervention or a specific thing we've done. I'm happy to explain. I'm happy to send them articles. I'm happy to, you know, like it's, I'm fairly transparent. Um, also fairly clear where it's like, okay, maybe, you know, like don't go in there by yourself and jump right in if, you know, depending on where they are and what's going on. But again, at the same time, it's also about developing that practice if people don't have one yet to kind of relate to themselves and check in with themselves on a regular basis so and I guess the problem then because that was the other question you asked is I mean at the moment it's still a fairly premium offer so people especially you know if you're looking at who gets coaching from a company which is really where where most of the money is sitting essentially it's people who if they wanted to could probably sort out quite a lot of resources for themselves whereas a lot of people who could really benefit from coaching can't get it because that's not you know that's not how it works or they wouldn't be able to pay for it or it wouldn't be you know like as a coach it would be difficult to offer a session for you know, a rate that somebody maybe who's starting out can afford or something, you know, like as, a, as an actual, you know, viable business. And, you know, a lot of coaches do a mix of, you know, paid work and then pro bono work or volunteering and so on. And, and I do that as well because um, I do think it would be great if everyone could could get at least some support. And I think that was also a bit the motivation for the first book because I, I thought, well, you know, I would have needed that in a phase of my life where I would not have been able to, to pay for coaching. But I wanted at least, you know, some pointers in the right direction. And the other thing is coaching, at least in most countries, is not an accredited profession. So, you know, anybody can call themselves a coach. You have no idea how they trained, how responsible they are with what they're doing and so on. A lot of the coaching training is shockingly bad. You know, people will do like a couple of weekends and learn a few tools and techniques. And the thing is, it's fairly easy to start a process with someone, you know, like, you know, you kind of know where to prod and then you get a reaction, but that's kind of not the point because you know like you need to basically finish what you start in a responsible way like you can't just chuck someone in there and then start something and then you're like okay see you in three weeks you know like you need to get them safely back 
and in a good state and in a way where stuff can integrate and so on. And, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, some sessions can be hairy depending on where someone is, but you kind of need to know where you are and what you're doing. And, you know, is that a coaching question you're working on or is that, for example, a therapy question? Like, you know, do, do you know where you are? Are you meant to be there? <laughs> like, do you have any business in there? Or, And I think, I think that territory is quite difficult and it's difficult to see you know how qualified is someone what work do they do on themselves do they have a range of options because very often you know people maybe train in one method and you know you can see that if you look at sort of their their training bio or stuff on the website and you see like institute x and they've done like the beginner the advanced the master the one thing another and the, the other thing or another but all in the same, you know, I think there's also benefits in training with different people and getting a good range. And I think people don't often, often don't do that. Right. Okay. Interesting. So, so I guess just being mindful of your time as well, really, um, I've got four questions and it will probably not be more than four than being honest, but before, yeah, before, go we, for it. before we get into them four, Tell me about this craft beer. Like, where's that come from? This, yeah. Ah. <laughs> my, my alter ego on Twitter, yeah. yes. Um, well, I mean, really since since forever. Um, so my family has a hop farm, actually, in southern Germany on my father's side. Uh, my father was running the farm for a couple of years before he then um, did something else. Um, it's a hop-growing region, teeny tiny like the size of a bath towel, so not one of the big hop growing regions, but still like people in the industry would, would know what Tetnanger Hopfen is. Um, so I kind of grew up with hops. The interesting thing is kind of growing up as a teenager and young adult, I didn't actually like beer. I didn't like the, the bitter sort of yeasty taste, which is ridiculous now looking back. Um, so that that came much later. And I got into this whole craft beer thing when I was when I was in the US, where there's, you know, some places have quite a vibrant craft beer scene. And I was working, uh, I was in Boston, I was working ridiculous hours for BCG, and I became friends with the people who ran the local bar. Because, you know, like, as I was sort of staggering out of the office looking for some human company to wind down from the day, I kind of just became friends with the local craft beer place across the street to the point where they actually ended up inviting me to staff meetings because, you know, like I was the sort of regular that was basically part of the staff. <laughs> oh, it was awesome. Yeah, and I kind of got, because I think it's a mix of tradition and at the same time breaking rules. And you can see there is a, there is a theme in there. Um, there is, you know, there's a lot of science and skill and knowledge behind it. And at the same time, it's also whimsy and you're dealing with natural products and one day it's hot, another day it's humid and, you know, like you can't, like you can do your bit, but then kind of nature needs to do its bit. And I think that's really cool. Like, I really like that. Um, and it's just really cool, nice people. So I started doing a, a craft beer certification last year because obviously I'm a training person, so I can't just do something without having an internationally accredited certificate in it, because hey. Um, and you know, like I remember I walked into that classroom and I'm like, yep, those are my people. 
you know, like it was just like it just felt so easy. And it's not, you know, people think, oh, you're doing a certificate in beer and they make like stupid jokes about it. But it's actually, you know, like there's proper science and you need to, you know, like it's not, oh, wow. you know, but well, yeah, it's just, I, I just really like it. And I've, I've done a bit of sort of, you know, like sometimes various breweries do like investment rounds and so on. So I started playing around with that fairly small scale but that's just a good way i found to get get a better sense of how that industry works because then you know you're involved with different breweries and you get a sense of what the different styles were and which one went bust and which one didn't and so on so some of the investors definitely didn't turn out well a few did but <laughs> like oh my god but that's you know you get sort of a sense of how that also works as as an industry or as a business Wow. And I just think that's really interesting. And then again, you know, like in most countries in the world, you can always find a bar. And because very often I travel by myself and then, you know, you hang around at the bar, have a have a chat with the bartender, talk a bit about beer, you know, what's going locally and so on. It's just, just a really good way of connecting. It's, an interesting, it's interesting because I, I, I work with a guy called Tim. He's from Germany. And he was telling me, Germany have a law, don't they, with the beer where, it, is it free ingredients? Is it just, it, it, I think, is it, is it like there's, there's a certain set amount of ingredients, isn't there, or something? Yeah, hop malt and barley, that's it. So like all the whole, you know, like pumpkin spice, ale, watermelon, ale, winter warmer, blah, 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 like none, none of the, they're having none of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when I was in the US and I obviously went like all in on all the flavors and all the crazy combinations and like bacon, maple syrup, ale and like all these weird and wonderful things and like some of my friends in germany got really upset like one of them literally wrote don't bother coming back. <laughs> like, what the hell? so like people take it really really personal and i might i mean you know like i think it's the oldest like food purity law or something right okay and you know i mean at at that time, that was actually quite amazing because people would, you know, anything you can get to ferment, which is pretty much, you know, depending on what you're putting together, that's almost anything, not always fit for human consumption, you know. So in terms of consumer protection, that was actually quite amazing uh -huh. um, to do that, you know, at a time where, you know, like you would not have wanted to drink the water, milk would have been seriously risky, you know, like, so it was actually not, not a bad idea. Wow. Okay, I didn't. I did not. I did not even know that. That's that's actually really quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, it's and obviously, I do love the you know all the seasonal stuff and the the crazy mixes and all of that. But you know, even if you just take the main ingredients, you can you know, there's so many different hops. They all have different flavor profiles. You can play around with you know, like do you you know how much you're roasting the malt and all of you know like there's, there's just so many different things than different water so beer from different regions made exactly the same way will taste completely different depending what's in the water so you know there's massive amounts of craftsmanship and you, you can do all sorts of weird and wonderful things with it even without adding stuff and then obviously if you do add stuff you can like knock yourself off with that which is also cool but yeah so i, I just think it's fascinating so so what is your username for twitter if people want to keep um tabs on your alter ego what's well the like my <laughs> my l and d like pro prof professional twitter is christine locker and the other one is beercraft christine there we go there we go 
So I've got two <laughs> questions for you and then we are done. So you've got a billboard and you've got a million people who are going to come out of a stadium and we're going to look at that billboard. And you can do anything, say anything, or just do anything with that billboard to shape a million people's minds. What what do you put on there? Hmm. This is going to sound cheesy and I'm just doing it, sort of saying it anyways. I think I will put on choose life. Okay. For a number of different reasons. So one is that's obviously the start of the monologue when, you know, of the train spotting film, which left a big impression when it first launched. Um, and there it's sort of the, you know, very mundane, like buying dishwashers and car, like I can't quite recreate yeah. it, but it's, yep. <laughs> your face tells me you know what I mean. Um, so there is something about just building a life that holds up by itself, which, um, as you all now know, hasn't always, like, <laughs> wasn't always my strongest style. So I think, you know, people underestimate how important that is. The other thing is, um, you know, sometimes things can feel really insurmountable and difficult. And it kind of reminds people to keep going anyways. At least that's what I would hope. And, and also, I mean, life is pretty great. Like, it's, you know, it's fun. It's awesome. There's like all sorts of sensory pleasures. It's like really cool, you know, like it's just, I think it's really awesome. And I think... I think people sometimes forget that and treat it like a prison sentence and it really isn't. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So two questions. One, who's who's the four people you think everybody, whether they're in L and D or they're coming into it or they've been in it for years, who's the four people you think everybody should follow? Oh wow. <laughs> you see why I've gone four people, because it's so easy to go with loads of names. Oh my God, I think I'm going to offend like probably about a hundred, depending, like regardless of who I'm going to mention, people are going to be offended. Um, I'm also guessing you probably won't let me out of that one. So I'm just going to start. Yeah. I think Kate Graham is amazing and people should follow her. She's also fabulous in highlighting lots of things other people are doing so if people want to get into stuff or into the discussion she's a fabulous person obviously also women in learning and so on so her uh don taylor also because he knows everybody and everything and he also highlights and shares a lot of stuff so he is a very good well, first of all, he's fabulous, but also, you know, he's a great node to be connected to because then that leads you to lots of other people. Um, and then it kind of really depends on where you want to take things. Um, I really like Nick Rivero. I mean, I, you know, as you know, I like lots of people, but Nick always has an, an interesting angle. I don't always agree with it. Sometimes I'm like, what? But um, he covers stuff that people don't really cover. He doesn't necessarily, you know, say everything everyone else is saying. He also sometimes asks questions hmm. that seem really simple, but really, really aren't. And people, you know, well, you can see people are sort of, 
trying to dismiss it and then realize, oh, actually, that's a really big deal. Yeah. And I respect that a lot. And then there is um, another wonderful person called White Owley, okay. who also just tweets the most amazing, insightful, poetic, provocative things. Okay. She's based out of Australia, um, and I will obviously share the links as well. Um, but yeah, she's she's amazing, and um, I've never met her, and I hope you know, like at some point, <laughs> that would be really cool. But yeah, that, that's another twitter wonderful person that kind of keeps keeps my mind and everything on its toes and that's great cool cool okay so so i guess kind of <clears throat> right at the start of the session i asked you what did you want to be when you grow up and as you, you of all people know we, we we're constantly growing and we're constantly developing and we're constantly learning new things even if it's about beer or or, or whatever all the, the fantastic things we can learn but if i was to ask you what do you want to be when you grow up now, what would you say? You mean from now as in my next career or what I or when I was a child? From from your next career. Your next yeah. My next career. Um I think I'll probably just keep keep adding things to the portfolio and at some point it will reach a point where if I add something new, something old will drop off. Um, I do quite like the beer idea. I'm at the moment playing with that without expectations, you know, of this to be a career in any sort of definition, but I love playing with it. Um, I miss working with my hands a little bit. So, you know, like I grew up in the countryside around farms and, you know, most people around me were not intellectuals in that sense. And, you know, like, when I had a part-time job during my last few years of school, I worked in construction. So, you know, like I'm, I'm used to doing like pretty serious hands-on things where you see at the end of the day what you've done. Whereas sometimes here, I feel like I'm working in a PowerPoint factory and yeah. <laughs> it's not quite the same level of gratification. So I miss kind of doing practical things with my hand and body. Mm. So there might that might be something I want to explore a little bit more. Cool. Awesome. So right at the start, I should pick four numbers as well. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So these four numbers tally up to a random list of items. So the story is, Christine, is you're on a desert island and you found mm -hmm. these four items. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I want to know what you're going to do with them. So mm -hmm. your four items are a nail clipper, oh, <laughs> a word search, a what? A word search, you know, like a puzzle. Oh my god! Um, a sponge and a balloon. Wow. Okay. Um. What I would do with that? Mm. Oof. Um. I would. Use the sponge to enhance my beach experience, just purely hedonistically, like without any other agenda. I would use the nail clipper to try and clip the word search into something that people can read, like either, you know, try and 
find patterns in it that make assuming i don't have a pen and i can't just like write a note <laughs> okay and then i would roll it up stuff it into the balloon blow it up tie a knot in it and use it like a message in a bottle ah i love it i love it awesome awesome tools and skills right there so we're, we're, we've come to the end christine thank you very much it's been a pleasure um Oh, it's been awesome. Yeah, it's been, I've really enjoyed this. But last question, where can people, just remind us again, where we can find you and where we can buy your book? Yes, so christinelocker.me, that's locker with C-H. That's the website, which leads to everything else. The book is on Amazon Kindle and it's called Values-Based, Career and Life Decisions That Make Sense. And I live on Twitter as Christine Locker, my L&D self. And if, you, if you're more interested in the beer, then it's Beer Craft Christine. Awesome. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on, Christine. You enjoy the rest of the evening. Bye-bye.